So I want to begin this morning with a question. As we get started with this passage, and you can get your Bibles out and your devices out if you haven't already, and turn to James 5. This passage that talks about the warning to the rich. But here's my question. It's a, a statement, truly. And the statement is, it, I think we, I want to pose this sort of as if, if I had you sitting here and, and I was interviewing you, and I want your response to this statement. Nothing reveals the, con- the condition of a person's heart more than their view of money. Ponder that for a moment. And as you notice that we're in James 5, those first six verses, the warning to the rich, here's the next question. How rich are you as you think of that? And before you answer that, I'm going to pop another one on you. How rich do you feel? Most of us don't feel rich. In fact, I did a little research on this. Interestingly enough, that if you make $60,000 a year, you are in the upper two-tenths of one percent of everyone in the world. Two-tenths of one percent. Suppose we drop that figure down. There are statistics at at every level, but for the sake of time, what about $20,000 a year? That would put you in the upper four percent you with $20,000 a year would be making more than 96% of the world's population. Wow. And if it was $10,000 a year, you'd still be making more than 84% of the, of the population. It's, it's, it's incredible. The Gallup organization discovered that 22% of the world population lives on less than $1.25 a day. That's nearly a quarter of the population of the world. You see, if you've got food in your pantry and clean water to drink, you're doing better than millions and millions of people in the world. The question here today, though, is not do we have money, but rather what is your money doing to us? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, In verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And just a few verses later in 624, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. How we think about our riches is crucial. It's really our attitude. You may have heard of uh, this pastor. His name is Alistair Begg. I think his church is in Ohio. He currently ministers there. He says this about attitude and the way that we think. He says, to think Christianly or biblically is to not just have some Christian thoughts or some biblical thoughts, but to have all of your thoughts come from a biblical perspective. You see, as Christians, we've been changed with the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling right inside of us. Our views and thoughts 
should be growing more and more mature and to become more and more in line with God's perspective. And in the way we live life, our perspectives of things should be different. Our view of beauty, of what prestige is, of what significance is, how we understand and view our careers and those relationships that we have, the security that we have in our society. And yes, what the Bible has to say about poverty and wealth as well. We should be being in the process of being transformed as Christians. As we've been studying the book of James, James really has already said a great deal about poor, the poor, and wealth or riches. In James 1, we're going to take a, a quick little tour through James here. In James 1, verses 9 through 11, he contrasts the humble and the rich. He's advocating for an attitude of humility. Later in chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, he was explaining a characteristic of true religion. He says that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, he continues on uh, in discussing uh, wealth and the poor. In chapter 2, the first seven verses, he talked about how we shouldn't show partiality and how poor are rich in faith and that we should not give preference to the rich, that worldly wealth is not important. And later in chapter 2, he said, hey, there's this strong connection between faith and deeds and that you should be acting as if you have faith and that if there's a brother in need, that you should meet the need. In chapter 3, he discusses jealousy and selfish ambition. And then in 4, he talks about submitting your desires to God. Selfish ambitions can make you an enemy of God. And he continues on and says in, at the end of chapter 4, that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, then that life is but a mist. So let's take a moment with all of that preliminary and read the passage. James 5, 1-6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your, garden, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. <laughs> Stingingly harsh words there by James. I think the passage that we just read is really akin, akin uh, to a prophetic lament as an example like we would see or can see in Ezekiel 29. Here we see a prophetic word given against Pharaoh and his forces. 
Pharaoh is addressed, but the people of God are the audience. So they might learn and be comforted by the fact that what is in store for Pharaoh, in spite of all of his forcefulness, will be overturned by the living God. And Jesus, in Luke 10, talks about these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he he says, Woe to you, inhabitants of these cities weren't hearing the words, but it was a prophetic lament against those places. And in hearing this, his disciples might learn that those who are opposing Christ in this kingdom will be overthrown. Now, there's always this question about who is this, who are the receivers of these six verses? And we understand that the book of James was written to the dispersed church, that it was written to Christians. But I would like to make give four quick points to establish um, that the target of the discussion were unbelievers. First, he refrains in these passage in this passage from his frequent obje- uh, address, excuse me, of, of saying the word brothers, uh, to which we will return again in 5-7. So it's these six verses that there's no uh, warm, warm uh, connection, no word that is meaning uh, community, especially fellow Christian. There's 15 times in the book of James in the five chapters where this word is used. Ten of them come up through chapter 4 and 5 in the end of chapter 5. But in these six verses, not mentioned. And then secondly, in James 4, 13 to 17, just before our passage today, he didn't have any explicitly Christian address here. But then he follows that up with, I I think of it as almost like a, a chest thumping, like, hey, you rich. And he's just calling them out. Thirdly, James writes to the rich, not with instruction or exhortation, but with this thorough condemnation, refusing to give the slightest hint of any redemption that is expected. And finally, his approach is in keeping with many Old Testament passages, condemning rich oppressors and affirming their needy, righteous victims. So, who are the rich that's being addressed here? Well, they're unbelievers who use their wealth to harm others. Importantly, it's also, it also includes those at the end of chapter 4 and verse 17. And we, we read there that they knew the right thing to do, but they didn't do it. And they did not use their wealth to help others. So here we are today in 2020. How should we read this section? Well, first, we should be comforted by the fact that James' words that God gives here are not allusions to anything other than the fact that the unjust will get punished. We should also hear a warning in James' condemnation that the temptation to trust wealth instead of God is a trap. It's been a trap and it's still a trap today. And most of us are vulnerable to that trap. The theologian, John Calvin, 
had this to say. He says, James has a high regard to the faithful that, are, that they are hearing about the miserable end of the rich might not envy their fortunes and also following God would be the avenger of their wages they suffered and they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. Wow. James is making it clear that though the rich appear to have it made in the shade, but really, they're the ones that should be wailing and howling. He wants his readers to understand the plight of the rich that's being described. And there's an outline that I could give you real quick. The first verse, it's the judgment. Then in verses 2 and 3, Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, there's a warning and the judgment being called out there in those. So I'm going to give you more details as we move through. So let me handle verse 1, the judgment. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Wow. If you knew what you were doing, he says to the rich, you would weep and wail for the terror of the judgment that is coming upon you at the day of the Lord. The vividness of the picture is increased by the word which James uses. It means even more than to wail. It's a shriek. It depicts the frantic terror on those of those on whom the judgment of God has come. We might well say that it is the word which describes those undergoing the tortures of the damned. In verses 2 and 3, those verses again, you, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The problem that James is identifying can be summarized as the hoarding of wealth. Their riches have rotted and their garments are moth-eaten. Rotted riches and moth-eaten clothes picture having so much wealth that these things are not even used. There is no doubt that we easily fall prey to the sin that James is identifying. At my house, we recently cleaned out the garage and I recognized something that as I was reorganizing I found many things that I didn't know I had. Do you know how many things that we had to throw out just because they were old and rotted and they'd gone to waste? You know our closets suffer the same issue, a familiar fate as our garage. In fact, I think that our attic has had so much in it, our house has been confused as 
being expecting. We accumulate and accumulate and accumulate to the point that we do not even know what we have anymore. We run out of space in our houses. We rent storage units to store what we can't store at home. We make more trips to Stuff Mart so that we can get more things to store. We have so much stuff that we lose it. And again, we have so many possessions that we even forget that we have them. Let me, let me be clear. We are to take care of our families. We are to feed them. We should clothe them. We should put a roof over their head. But God has not given us these material blessings and the wealth that we enjoy so that we can just have closets full of toys and things. God has not blessed us so that we can buy bigger houses to put all of our stuff in or to build the shop because the garage doesn't hold it. This is not a con condemnation that, <clears throat> excuse me, is this not a condemnation that Jesus makes in his parable of the rich fool? You can find that in Luke 12. Remember what the rich fool said when he had a mighty windfall of this great crop? And he said, here it is, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. What did the rich fool do? Well, he began to hoard his riches. He decided to build bigger barns because he had so much stuff. What is it that we're hoarding up for? Are we hanging on to everything because we want to give it to our kids? You know, hopefully we're not teaching them to have the same hoarding habits. Things simply wear out, as James observes. None of these things last, so why is it that we're trying to accumulate so much of it? God gives to us so that we will use our possessions and our wealth to further the kingdom of God. We should give our clothes to those that need clothes. We should give our possessions and wealth to help our fellow Christians. We should be giving our time to be used by God as well. We are living in difficult economic times for sure. In terms of work and jobs, we should be prepared to give the things we have to help each other out. Here, I have two of something. Please, take mine. Give what you, get what you have and Stop collecting more and more and more. We have people in this very church who can use our assistance. How about, how about investing money in the efforts to reach the lost? Could there be more valuable uh, thing to do than to give money to the church how about giving money to your neighbors or giving things to your neighbors that they need? Now, 
I'm not advocating socialism here. I'm saying to be led by the Holy Spirit and give. I've been blessed by God many times and with some emotion I remember having needs and brothers and sisters coming up to me in this pocket right here and just sticking money in it. Wow, what a blessing. Most people are not hoarding for sure. And I know many of you have the same heart. And I want to encourage that. There have been times when I've, I've leaned this way some. In my own words, here, the, here it is. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be given broken stuff. You know, we should use our money and our resources to give good things and let the Lord take credit for how you're being used. Yeah. Sometimes, hey, I'll, I'll give something, but it's not that good to be given away. We should be careful of what we're gripping onto. And hoarding. Well, there's this second topic, and it's in verse 4 defrauding. The verse says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here, James identifies those who gather wealth by defrauding other people with dishonest treatment and the intention of gaining money. He's picturing a person who is not generous at all with his wealth. Rather, this person is squeezing, squeezing the almighty dollar, trying to get as much as he can out of it. To use a word, he's a cheater. The Lord moved me to, to write these words, that if someone works for us, they must be given what is due them for their work. We must not be swindling our employer, trying to get more money out of them than what is due to us. How about this one, you guys, this morning? Our taxes should be paid in full. Again, we should be generous with our money. The waiter or waitress that works hard should be given what is due them. And as an employee, if you get paid for eight hours, you should have worked for eight hours. Pay people back what is owed them. You know, how, how awful it is that Debts remain outstanding, especially when we have borrowed from Christian brothers and sisters. You know, and further, uh, we're, we're defrauding God. The question is, how tightly are you grasping your money and stuff? Can you imagine if we lived under the law of Moses, which commanded giving the first 10% of 
your income. I'm afraid that our attitude might be gripe and complain rather than to give with thanks. Think about that. If you made $50,000, the tithe would demand nearly $100 a week. I'm not here today to talk about, talk about tithing. But I am wanting you to think about your attitude toward money and giving. We must consider if we are being generous or if we are just tightly holding on to our wealth. Which of these describes you? Knowing all of this, James, James issues a stern warning regarding the, the phrase, God hears the cries of the harvester. Those cries reach the Lord of Sabaoth. That is the Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty. Literally, the Lord of the armies. He sees that what the rich have done and he knows how he uses his wealth to crush the poor. Those cries of the workers reach the Lord of the armies. Injustice will not last forever. Here's the message in one sentence. The man who cheats the poor will be dealt with by God who is big enough to do something about it. Wealth can protect you from many things on earth, but it cannot protect you from the judgment of God. He sees, he hears, he knows the injustice will not last forever. Now in verse 5. This verse is about self-indulgence. James, James gives this warning. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is a cause and effect in this third warning. Because the rich have lived in luxury, they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. Please understand this morning that money is morally neutral. Just as money isn't the problem, having money isn't intrinsically good or evil. And the poor are not righteous because they're poor, and the rich are not necessarily evil because they have money. Righteousness doesn't depend on the size of your bank account. But riches can trick you into thinking that you don't need God. After all, you have enough money to kind of create your own little heaven on earth here. But it's not real. And it won't last. But money has tremendous power to feed our delusions. Have you ever seen the the, the, I think it was a meme, and it had this really nice house and a shovel leaning against it. And there was two graves right beside the house. And the caption was something like, you know, we're all going to end up in the same place. Our bodies. You know, the point being that the rich men James is talking about had fattened themselves at the expense of their workers. 
Their greed blinded them to the needs of others. They rationalized their sin by saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Ah, that's how business gets done. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Anyway, it's not my problem. Wow. Have any of you ever raised any livestock? I grew up with uh, some cows around and some, some cattle and uh, quite a few pigs. At our, at our highest point, we had 230 pigs. And we, uh, some of those would, would get, you know, made into bacon. And uh, right before it was time to slaughter, we, we, fed, them, we fed them hard. We were looking to get as much bacon as we could. And the pigs, they're just plopping it up, not knowing what's coming. Not knowing what's coming at all. No idea. Hmm. Unfortunately, for those who only think of themselves by satisfying their desires for self-indulgence, a day of slaughter is coming. And God's going to start with the rich pigs. Let's take a look at verse 6. Wealth can make us ruthless. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. The righteous person here probably referring to a class of people. Um, and then he finishes with saying, he does not resist you. The word translated condemned here probably comes from the courtroom. It means to press <clears throat> a guilty verdict in a, in a very personal way. In this case, the rich are using the legal system to destroy the, po the poor. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 6, we see that the rich people knew how to work the system. And this, uh, this poor day laborer had been ripped off by the man who had promised to pay him, and he lied to his face. The, the laborer probably was making just enough to feed his family. So he needed, he needed the money in order to be able to really meet the immediate needs. So this, this laborer gathers up what money he can, and he tries to bring a, the uh, wealthy man to court, and we all know how this ends. The rich have all the advantages. They can hire the best lawyers who know how to craft the most powerful arguments. The rich can pay off necessary people and essentially rig the system. And they can turn the truth upside down so the poor man has no chance. And when he tries to win in court, the judge not only rules against him, he sends the poor man to prison, bankrupting him in the process. And meanwhile, the rich man laughs about it with his buddies out on the golf course, having been willing to do anything for money, even murder. It's often said that James who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, never mentions the crucifixion. That's true in a literal sense, but he may be thinking of Jesus when he writes about the righteous man here in verse 6. You find out what you believe when others mistreat you. Jesus was truly innocent. Though he had done no wrong, he was sentenced to death. Wicked men plotted against him. 
committed perjury against Him. As we think of the truly righteous person, they twisted His words, they stirred up the crowd, and they backed Pilate into a corner so that He would send Him to be crucified. They murdered the Son of God to satisfy their blood lust. And James says that this righteous man in verse 6 did not resist his accusers. The poor man doesn't resist because he can't resist, but he, because he's helpless against the rich. But, but Jesus had all the power in the world, and yet he chose not to use it. When they scourged him, he didn't retaliate. And when the soldiers put the crown on his head, that crown of thorns, he didn't curse them. And when they drove the nails into his hands and feet, he didn't threaten them. When bystanders spat at him, he didn't spit back. And when they swore at him, he didn't swear back at them. You see, if you follow Jesus, this will happen to you too. That's the real test of your faith. You find out what you believe when others mistreat you. And sometimes the real test of your faith is that you don't, is, is really what you don't do. Sometimes you'll be a better Christian by not saying anything at all. But this text, this text reminds me that the problem is not the money. I hope you hear that this morning. The problem lies in the human heart. My enemy is not my bank account. Your enemy is not your bank account. The enemy is really the man in the mirror who worries too much about his bank account. In a real sense, money is like bait in the hook. Satan uses money to get us hooked into greed and self-indulgence. and He uses our money to turn us away from generosity toward the poor. He uses our money to make us think that the measure of a man is his bottom line. Your money will testify for you or against you. But against all that have the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 15. And He said to them, take care and be in your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We began today when I started with a statement. It was the question I ask of you. Nothing reveals the condition of a person's heart more than their view of money. I was wanting you to contemplate on that. And I'm, I'm struck by what James says in verse 1 about our money testifying about us in the last day. And when you stand before the Lord, New Life Church, your money will be a witness for or against you. 
What will your money say about you? And I'd like to finish with these verses from 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which is like arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of the riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Would you pray with me? Father God, a harsh condemnation to the rich, to arrogant, hoarding, self-indulgence. And Lord, this morning I pray that we would truly be lovers of you, followers of you, that we would be listening to your voice, that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, and that, Lord, we would be characterized by being generous people, people of love and people of affection for those around us. And I just pray that this morning in your name. Amen.